You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Well, really, for the most part, the rest of the book of Exodus from chapter 25 onwards is dedicated to this thing called the tabernacle. Moses, at the point that we left him at the end of chapter 24, is up on the mountaintop for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving directions from the Lord. Now, he's already received the Ten Commandments. He's already received the civil code and law for the people of Israel. They have committed to it and said, yes, we will do all that the Lord has said. God promised, I'll go before you. They sacrificed to the Lord. Moses took some of the blood and threw it on an altar that they'd made to the Lord and threw the rest upon the people, the covenant established by blood. And now Moses goes up to the mountaintop where God speaks to him concerning the tabernacle. The sheer volume of what follows indicates the importance of the tabernacle in a few different ways. First of all, the importance of the tabernacle to Israel's national life. It would symbolize the the tabernacle and then later on the temple that God dwelt amongst and within his people. It's a place where the leaders could go and meet with God. The people could go to worship God, where God's glory was manifest and made obvious to the nation and the nations around them. And so it was a visible center for the worship of God for the people of Israel, which was an interesting thing because what you had here was the God of all creation saying, I want to dwell and tabernacle amongst you, which of course points us to the wonderful reality of Jesus Christ, that God became flesh and dwelt, John says, literally tabernacled amongst us from John chapter 1, verse 14. So all of this points in so many ways to Jesus Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of all of these things is found within Jesus. And so here we have this section now where we're going to discover the law of God regarding worship. And and I should say, I should just point out here, God is the one who's going to tell Moses, this is what my tabernacle will look like. This is what it will be built with. These are the instruments that are to be found in it. And God is the one speaking to man concerning worship. In other words, God is the one deciding how he is to be worshiped. We live in a culture, a time, a generation that loves to decide for itself how God will be worshipped. And we make up our own rules. I believe in this or I believe in that. God, however, says, no, this is how I'm to be worshipped. And in this era, to his people at this time, the tabernacle was the way in which God would receive worship from his people. So God creates the plan and man follows. We start reading in chapter 25, verse 1, first with the offering that the people of Israel would give to the Lord. He said, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, verse 2, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. So they're going to have this offering. It's a voluntary kind of thing. He says in verse 2, every man whose heart moves him, and as we'll discover later, 
most of their hearts were radically and abundantly moved. They really wanted to get behind this thing. They were very excited about it, so they responded very well to this giving. In one sense, this was an above and beyond the tithe kind of gift that they would give to the Lord. And in that sense, this is very parallel to the New Testament reality. Paul tells the Corinthian church, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I've unfortunately talked to so many who say, well, I can't be cheerful about it, therefore I can't be a giver. Well, Jesus also said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When you invest in the kingdom, slowly but surely, your heart begins to change and eventually it becomes a great and incredible joy for you because your treasure is in the thing that you invest in. And if you're unable to give to the Lord of your finances, then it might be an indication you have not given well because when you give well, your heart shifts and you treasure it, therefore wanting to give even more. And as Christians, we're in a very similar place to these folks. They had received great riches from God because of their redemption from Egypt. The Egyptians had given them great treasures as they left them and come out of them. They'd had victory over the Amalekites and had amassed more treasure and possessions for themselves. So everything that they had, in one sense, had come from God. And with that perspective, we give unto the Lord. I think it's a shame that so many people miss out on this blessing of God in their lives. A small percentage of the people footing the bill for the large majority. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. It's an absolute treasure to give to the Lord. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, well, I don't have any extra money to be able to give unto the Lord. And I would say to you, perhaps the reason that you don't have any extra money is because you haven't given unto the Lord. Watch and see what happens. When God gets a hold of your life and you begin to have an open and generous hand, and you freely give and you respond to that moving of God upon your heart, the Lord will be tested in this thing and he will provide for you. So the people did, they responded well, but that's for another part of this book. In verse 3, God continues to describe the contribution that he wanted from the people of Israel at this moment. He says, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. And he goes on to list all of these different materials. First of all, gold, silver, and bronze. So these three precious metals of which we're very familiar. Blue, verse 4, and purple and scarlet yarn. So he's got these three Colors of yarn that they would receive, blue being one of the colors, purple being another color, and scarlet being the final color. And so these three yarns would also be collected. And of course, as you see these used in the tabernacle, you know, each little part of the tabernacle speaks of something about Jesus Christ and the fulfillment uh, being found in him. And so perhaps the blue speaking of his heavenly nature and reality. The purple is a color of royalty throughout scripture. And the scarlet, of course, points us continually to blood, to sacrifice. So you have the heavenly king who died. Just right there in the colors of the yarn. The heavenly king who died. And, and also another thing that they would use was fine twilled linen. Probably from the Egyptians. As they've looked into Egyptian tombs, there have been, they've discovered linen that had up to 152 threads per inch. So very advanced. So 
They had some of that from the Egyptians, this fine twilled linen, goat's hair, he says in verse 4, and verse 5, tanned ram's skins. And so the wool is removed and dyed a red color, so they get this leather. Verse 5, also goat skins and acacia wood. So this is acacia wood that's it's darker and harder than oak wood would be. A very termite-resistant wood. And in verse 6, oil for the lamps, likely olive oil. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. So there would be these spices, and he tells them exactly what these spices were for. They're for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. So you have the different types of oil, myrrh, cinnamon, cane, cassia, and then the, the incense. So just a beautiful spices that they were to gather and to collect. And then he says there in verse 7, onyx stones and stones for setting. It's hard to put our finger on exactly what stones he's referring to, but these would be used, of course, in the breastplate and in other ornaments there in the tabernacle for the ephod and for the breastpiece, he says in verse 7. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. So shall you make it. And so he, he tells them what to collect and then he tells them why to collect it. He says, let them make me a sanctuary. Once again, just the gravity of the reality of God saying, I want to dwell amongst these people. I want to be at the center of who they are. And when you see where the tabernacle would be placed, it was always at the center of who they were, the center of their encampment. God wants to dwell with us. He wants to be at the center of the action, at the center of our lives, not on the outskirts, but at the center of who we are. He wants to be intimately and intricately involved with you and me. I heard a wonderful musician recently sharing just a, a beautiful song about the Lord, just saying, you know, you paid dearly so that you might have intimacy with me. That's the sentiment that God is expressing when he says, let them make me a sanctuary. Now, a sanctuary is literally a holy and set apart place. You know, God tabernacling with them and dwelling with them. And this tabernacle would be referred to throughout the rest of the Old Testament as the sanctuary at times as the tabernacle, as the sacred place, as the tent of meeting, as the tabernacle of the testimony, the tent of the testimony, because the law was actually held there. So he had a lot of different names, but here he refers to it as the tabernacle or as the sanctuary. And he says, Moses, when you build it, build it exactly as I show you. Once again, God creates the plan. We follow his plan, and this goes for everything in life. When God speaks on a matter, and when God says, this is what a marriage is to look like, this is what a church is to look like, this is what a family is to look like, this is what a culture is to look like, we have to listen to what God has to say. We don't build according to our own devices. We're not to sit back and say, well, I think that a church should, and we fill in that blank. No, we're to look into his word and say, God, what have you said, and what have you spoken? We want to build according to your plan. But in verse 9, he gives them a deeper reason for why. Not just his authority, but in verse 9, he says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you shall make it. God will continually refer to this pattern. And what this indicates 
is that this tabernacle was a symbol of a deeper reality that was somewhere, someplace. This tabernacle was only a pattern of the real thing that was elsewhere. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, we discover that the pattern that the tabernacle was, was simply a pattern of heaven itself. He says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, Hebrews 9, verse 23, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This was a symbol, a pattern of the true thing, which was heaven itself, the throne room of God. And so there are pictures in each and every element of this tabernacle. And it will be fun for us as we study the tabernacle and all of the pieces that go along with it to see some of the more obvious pictures that lead us to God and to seeing different wonderful facets of Jesus Christ, cross, the atonement, all of that. But these point to a deeper reality. I won't get into the minutia of it, but we'll get to see some of it as we pass through these next few chapters. They shall make, verse 10, an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So now we're moving past the elements that would be used in the tabernacle in actually talking about the ark. And that's fascinating because God is now addressing the most important piece of the entire tabernacle, all of the garments, everything that was involved with the priesthood and all of that. The first thing that God wants to speak about is the ark itself. And he gives the size first. He says, two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. This means that it'd be a rectangular chest about a couple of feet wide, a few feet long, and a couple of feet tall. And so a rectangular chest. He says, you shall overlay it, verse 11, with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. So here we are introduced, like I said, to this most important piece of the tabernacle, the ark. This would be called the chest, the ark, the ark of the testimony, because it would contain the law, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and of all the earth, the sacred ark, the ark of your might in Psalm 132, verse 8. And this was a place where God would dwell, the throne of God. And so God begins at the very heart of things, not with the externals, but with the internal. God wants to be on the throne of our hearts. He wants leadership and rule and reign within our lives. Notice that the ark, here right at the center of things, at the very heart of the holy of holies, very center of the nation, the ark was to be made of acacia wood and covered with pure gold. And of course, it's not difficult to see a beautiful picture there. You see, in one sense, the wood, a very earthy substance, and the gold speaking of something heavenly. In one sense, it seems as if with this ark, you've got the humanity and the deity of Christ being pointed to. Fully God, 
fully man and dwelling amongst us. A picture, a promise of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 12, he tells them about the ark. He says, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You should put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So he not only gives directions about the ark itself, the rectangular box, but he says that on the side of the ark, you'll have these holes, these rings, and these rings, you will then take these acacia wood poles, cover them with pure gold, and insert the poles. Do not remove them. And this will be how you will move the ark. This is how you will actually carry it. So God is even deciding how the ark will be transported. And he says there in verse 16, he says, And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And so what this means is that the law was actually placed inside of the ark upon completion. Now, the ark is one thing. And had the people of Israel been perfect, without sin, without blemish, by itself, that's all the people of Israel would have needed. However, they needed everything else beyond this because of the sin problem that dwelt within them, especially this first thing that God mentions after the ark, the mercy seat that sat upon the ark, so much so that it was a part of the ark itself. He said, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. This would mean that it would fit perfectly on top of the ark. And you shall make two cherubim, these are angels, of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give to you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this mercy seat, it was very, very necessary that there be something in between the law which condemned the people of Israel because it declared them as guilty. The law was given. They said, we will do it. It was very necessary that something be in between them and the law that declared them as guilty. And the thing that was primarily in between them, sure, there was the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the altar, the sacrifices. Ultimately, the thing that was between them and the law was the mercy seat. The blood would be applied to the mercy seat. Atonement would cover them at the mercy seat. Mercy was given at this particular place. And for that reason, the mercy seat is an incredible foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so this is God's way of pointing towards the cross of Christ, this mercy seat. We come to, to God only by the mercy seat that is the cross of Christ, by the blood of Jesus, and by no other thing. On that last day, there will be those who will say to the Lord, 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 did we not cast out demons? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that he will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. These are people who are clinging to their works to earn them a spot in the presence of God. They think that they don't need a mercy seat. Those who then, who on the other hand, say to the Lord, 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 receive me by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who say that, those are the people whom God will receive. Not that we don't want to do many mighty works or prophesy or cast out demons. We surely do. But we understand that none of that will ever give us entrance into God's kingdom. And so the ark is described, the mercy seat is described with these cherubim of gold on top of it. Picture of the heavenly reality to be sure when you read the book of Revelation, you see John describing the heavenly realm, you see the cherubim. It's a wonderful picture of the reality there. God says to them in verse 22, there I will meet with you. On verse 23, he goes on to describe some of the other elements in the tabernacle. First, the table of showbread outside of the Holy of Holies. He says, you shall make, verse 23, a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. The cubit probably being about 18 inches. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it for a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. So this rim would actually keep the elements that were on top of it from falling off. And you shall make for it, verse 26, four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Very similar to the ark. They would have these rings. Close, verse 27, to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. So very similar to the ark. And you shall, verse 29, make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. So the instruments themselves, not out of wood covered with gold, but out of pure gold, these were heavenly symbols, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now the interesting thing here is that in the pagan religions of the time, they would have perhaps pitchers and bowls and instruments and sacrifices and all of that, but all of it was designed to actually feed the God that they were worshiping. God is spirit, and he in his tabernacle would never actually consume or eat the food himself. It was all to either be completely burnt and come up to him in 
smoke and aroma and in incense and all of that. Or it was to be cooked and the people themselves would partake of it. The priests, the people would actually have an opportunity to eat these sacrifices that had been given to the Lord, making God entirely different from the pagan gods around him. And here you have this table described with all of these different dishes and plates and pitchers and bowls. And on top of the table, there would also set this thing called the bread of the presence before God regularly. It's, this is the place where the priest would serve and they found their bread upon this table. And uh, every day there'd be these 12 loaves that they would place there symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. But this was a symbol of God's provision for them, not their provision for God. This is a symbol of God preserving man. And of course, Jesus Christ is the ultimate bread of the presence. He is the, he said in John chapter 6, the bread of life, the true bread that came down from heaven. Not the manna, not the bread there in the tabernacle, but Jesus Christ, the true bread. Now finally, we have the lampstand in verse 31. He said, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Now, of all of the things that are found here in the tabernacle, the lampstand is probably the most difficult to understand what it looked like because it's a very intricate description that God gives, the most intricate piece here in the tabernacle. He says, And there shall be six branches, verse 32, going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out on one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three cups shall be made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower. So a little flower bud looking thing there engraved on the lampstand. One on each branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So the flower petals and the thing that encapsulates the flower, the protective green part of the flower, the calyx on the other branch. For so the six branches going out of the lampstand. And verse 34, on the lampstand itself, those should be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes, verse 36, and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. So just one piece of gold to fashion this entire lampstand. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. So the light inside of the tabernacle would come primarily from this lampstand. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold, he said. Verse 39, it shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent, so about 75 pounds of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Now, of course, just as the ark and the mercy seat pointed to Christ who fulfilled the law and gives us mercy through the cross, and just as the bread points to Jesus who is the true bread of heaven for us, the true provision of God for us, the lampstand as well is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He would stand before the people during the Feast of Tabernacles and declare, I am the light of the world. And of course, now the church. We are pictured in the book of Revelation as lampstands, 
we now illuminate the light of Christ, the light of his message to the world in which we live. Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world, illuminating a dark place in need of the truth. And so be encouraged by Christ, be encouraged by the reality that is in heaven. These are just a shadow of the good things to come. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.